Good morning. So we're finishing the book of Esther and yes, it's a very long uh, reading this morning. I might have to do a little song and dance routine in the middle of it. Just kidding. Okay, Esther chapter 8, beginning at verse 3. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favour and thinks it is the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have empowered him on the pole he set up. Now write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. At once the royal secretaries were summoned on the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan. They wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors and nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers riding the royal horses went out spurred on by the king's command and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honour. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, There was joy and gladness among the Jews, with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities in all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them, 
because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces and he became more and more powerful. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed Parshandatha, Dalphon, Aspartha, Karatha, Adalia, Aradatha, Parmashta, Arasai, Aradai, and Vezartha, the ten sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. The number of those killed in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. The king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? It will also be granted. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also and let Haman's 10 sons be impaled on poles. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they impaled the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa 300 men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day, they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. The Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th and 14th, and then on the 15th, they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. That is why rural Jews, those living in villages, observe the 14th of the month of Adar as a day of joy and feasting, a day for giving presents to each other. Mordecai recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes near and far to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote to them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the pur, that is, the lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back onto his own head and that he and his sons should be impaled on poles. Therefore, these days were called the Purim from the word pur because of everything written in this letter 
and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and the, their descendants and all who join them should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation by every family and in every province and in every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. So Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter concerning Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in the, in the 127 provinces of Xerxes' kingdom, words of goodwill and assurance, to establish these days of Purim at their designated times, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them, and as they had established for themselves and their descendants in regards to their times of fasting and lamentation. Esther's decree confirmed these regulations about Purim, and it was written down in the records. King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores, and all his acts of power and might, together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews, and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews, because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. Thanks, Robin. Over the last four weeks, then, we've read through the whole ten chapters of Esther, so thank you uh, for bearing with us with our long readings. If we haven't met, my name's Carl. I'm the senior pastor here at Trinity Church. Only thanks for joining with us this morning. We're in week four of a four-week series looking at the book of Esther at the moment. Let me just say, next week, uh, Reuben Salagaris from ES is coming to speak to us. Reuben uh, has taken over that role from Jeff Lynn. Many of you might have remembered Jeff coming to speak to us occasionally. Reuben's coming. He's going to be opening 1 Thessalonians with us. He's also going to be talking a little bit about university ministry and what that is like. So that's next week. You have that to look forward to. Uh, if you have questions that come out of our time together this morning, please uh, text them through to me. The number, I think, is on your leaflet or perhaps on the screen behind me at the moment. Uh, any questions from Esther, you can text through. Uh, I didn't get a chance to answer the 9am questions, so I'll be answering them a little bit later on as well. well. Let me start by asking you, do you like ice cream? It's the sort of ice cream weather outside today for the first time in a long time. Do you enjoy ice cream? In our house, it's a favourite. Uh, my eight-year-old, Gus, as I've told you before, he's our very fussy eater, but Gus will eat, eat ice cream. He loves it, actually. A few years back, we went down to Henley Beach on a day not dissimilar to this to go and enjoy some fish and chips in the evening. We parked the car down at the beach and the idea was then to walk down to the square. And as we were walking, we were noticing people coming towards us. Most of them seemed to have an ice cream in their hand. It just must have been the weather for it. And so my Gus said to me, Dad, could we get an ice cream? Now, being the responsible dad that I try to be, uh, thinking through the dietary impact of fish and chips and then an ice cream and not wanting the coronary heart disease that probably comes along with that. I said what most dads do. I said, I'll think about it. I'll think about it. And Gus, in his wisdom, just chose to let that sort of hang there. 
and dropped the conversation. Maybe we went for a walk, ordered our fish and chips, sat down on the grass, and then, as I often do, I asked the kids, would someone like to give thanks for the food? And Gush says, yes, I'll do that tonight. And if my memory's right, this is the words of his prayer. He said this, Dear God, thank you for the beach. Thank you for fish and chips. And dear God, thank you for the ice cream we're going to have for dessert. Amen. <laughs> now, I was in a tricky spot, wasn't I? I want to encourage my kids to trust in the power of prayer. And, but what do I do? Well, we went home fuller that night than we probably should have. But in a way, this is my own little Esther story. The story of Esther in my life. I mean, obviously, this is minor, minus the murder and the intrigue and the sex and the lavish wealth and all that sort of stuff that we see in Esther. And it's not really an Esther story in a sense, but this story about ice cream, you might wonder, was God at work? Or is that just coincidence? Is God answering Gus's prayer, or is he simply manipulating me as his dad? And in one sense, we can't be 100% sure, can we? Because God's never promised to give anybody ice cream. And God's never promised even to keep our tummies full. And yet, he does tell us that he likes it when we come to him in prayer. And he wants to know what's on our hearts and in our minds. He wants us to pray to him. Set back from the ice cream for a moment... And consider this question, do you ever wonder if God is alive or real? Or maybe you know he's real, but do you think he feels absent at this stage in our lives? Do you ever question if he's active in the world in which we live? I mean, we read the stories in the Bible, don't we, about how the prophets, they spoke boldly and how God did these amazing acts of parting the sea, for example, or how the walls of Jericho fell. We read about the miracles of Jesus, about him healing anyone who came to him, regardless of their sickness, and doing these amazing acts of calming storms and, and even raising people from the dead. We read about those things, but you might wonder, what's God doing today? Do you ever wonder, where is he in the world in which we live today? Where is he in this time that we live in? Over the last four weeks, I've been trying to show you how Esther's a helpful book for us as we, we grapple with just that question. It's a helpful book because it shows us that in Esther's time, God was alive and he was active, but not through the big, bold words of a prophet or through amazing miracles but rather he was at work providentially through things like the rolling of a dice or a conversation that's overheard. And here's the thing that I think it's helpful for us today. I think that's how God works today. It's not that he can't work definitively or concretely or um, in these amazing, miraculous ways today. It's not that he can't do that. He's done that many times before throughout history. God can do that. In fact, he's promised that he will return in the person of Jesus. He will again act definitively. But for now, it seems, in this time, God seems to be at work providentially. And Esther reminds us that he can still be in control when he works like that. 
We see that control, I think, most clearly in this book with the, the amazing reversals that happen time and time again throughout this story. This is a story in which the, the powerful, the mighty are brought low and the low are lifted up. And that doesn't normally happen in our world. And so we must conclude, oh, this is God at work here. It's a wonderful story, this story in the book of Esther. If you haven't read it before, I encourage you to to, to spend 40 minutes, sit down and read through all 10 chapters. It is a story and it it works well when you read it in one go. If you've missed a bit of the story, if you haven't been here for all the last four weeks, I've got to just try and summarize what happens very quickly so that you have a bit of an idea about what we've covered over the last three weeks. Esther's set in the Persian Empire. They were the superpower at the time. This is about 500 years before Jesus. And the empire of Persia is vast. It stretches 127 provinces, we read, from one side of the world essentially to the other. The known world. And at the time, the king of Persia, when Esther's set, is a man who goes by the name of Xerxes. We, we, we understand him to be controlling and, and yet fickle, and he's easy to manipulate. In our story, there are two heroes in the book of Esther. The first is Mordecai, and the second is his cousin, Esther. Both Esther and Mordecai are Jews, and through what can only really be described as the providence of God, Esther ends up becoming King Xerxes' queen, while Mordecai prevents that king's assassination. Mordecai and Esther are the heroes in this story. The villain is Haman. Haman's an Agagite. We learned that that makes him part of that people group who are long hated by the Israelites. That had been stretching back for centuries before Esther. And this is a problem for Mordecai and Esther because Haman's the second most powerful person in the whole kingdom and he's able to manipulate and control the king. And the story unfolds with Haman planning to kill his enemy Mordecai, but not just Mordecai, the entire Jewish people. And last week we saw this this marvellous story of reversal and irony. Haman, who was puffed up in his own pride and in his own hubris, he thinks he's about to get honoured by King Xerxes. And right at that moment, instead, he's forced to honour his enemy Mordecai. Haman, in his hatred, he builds a gallows. It's a a pole stretching 23 metres up into the sky, an enormous pole, and his intention is to have Mordecai impaled on that pole. And yet, with more irony, we see another of these reversals, and, and Haman ends up impaled on the pole that he built. And his estate, it's given to Esther and to Mordecai. We got that far last week, with Haman killed. And as we get to the start of our passage for this week, really only one problem remains for the Jews, and that is the edict that was passed by Haman and King Xerxes that describes the killing of all the Jews. It's going to happen on the 13th day of the 12th month. You might remember that from the rolling of the dice. That time is still coming. The Jews are still being threatened. And so in our reading today, Esther again goes to the king. Now come with me in your Bibles to Esther chapter 8 verse 3. I think it's going to be on the screen behind me as well. I want you to see see these words uh, clearly. So 
uh, verse 3 of Esther chapter 8, Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which she had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favour and thinks it is the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all of the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? And what happens? Well, a, a new edict is, is issued. It's written this time by, by Mordecai. And again, it's a reversal. See, the original edict gave others permission to kill the Jews in the Persian land. This new edict gives permission for the Jews to kill their enemies. Come down with me to verse 15 of chapter 8. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. I want you to see more reversals here. You know, we see hints of chapter 1 here, don't we? Remember the celebration of King Xerxes with his power and the gold and the blue and white linen. And now Mordecai is wearing gold and he's wearing garments of blue and white. But perhaps the, the most striking example of this reversal in the whole book of Esther we see at the start of chapter 9. Let me read to you there from verse 1. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities in all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because the people of all other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces and he became more and more powerful. You see here that phrase, the tables have turned. The weak have become the powerful. And for those of you who have been reading this story, reading along closely, you might even have noticed a change in Esther's behaviour at this point in the story. She now asked the king to enact the edict for another day. This seems to be of her own accord, her own idea. And I want you to see these chapters, they, they drip with irony and these, these reversals are very clear. But this story also drips with blood, doesn't it? It's a brutal story. If you thought the sex at the, heart, at the start of the story was hard to deal with, here we have killing on a, on a horrific scale. This is a story of irony and humour, but it's also a brutal and graphic story. And we get to the end of it today, and, and as you look back, you might then wonder, well, 
what was the story all about? And at one level, as, as we, we saw in our reading today, the book of Esther explains the reason for the Jewish festival of Purim. It's a, a festival that the Jews still celebrate as a people group today. This year, the festival was held on the 16th and 17th of March. It's a festival where they have a banquet and they drink and they give gifts to the poor. So it has a meaning for the Jewish people today. But for us today as Christians, I think this book has lots to say to us about how God is at work in the world. It's a book written to show us the powerful hand of God even when we can't see that hand. The book of Esther, in a broad brushstroke, pits our God up against the might of the Persian Empire and our God comes out on top. And he does this by working quietly and providentially behind the scenes. You know, unlike other parts of the Bible where God acts through, through prophetic statements or, or miraculous events or where, where God is in the person of Jesus, in Esther we see God at work behind the scenes and yet the outcome is the same. God's redemptive plan does not fail. Despite the might of the Persian Empire, God keeps his promises. He preserves his people. So you're following along in the outline in your leaflet. We're up to kind of the, the second point in this story. We, we're talking about God's redemptive plan. His redemptive plan, I think, is really what the book of Esther is all about. I'm borrowing a few ideas here from, from Karen Jobes, who wrote a, a great commentary on the book of Esther. If you want to do some more reading, have a look at her book. Here's a thought... You know, today I think here many of us have a, a faith, an active faith in God. And, and while for some of us that, that faith may in part be due to, well, looking back over our life and, and seeing God's providential hand at work in our life, we might see some of that as we look back in our life. For most of us, our faith today rests on the promises and the events that we read about in this book. Mostly our faith comes, I think, from, from knowing what this book says about who our God is and what he's done. In this book, we read about the promises God made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and to others like Moses and Elijah. It's in this book that we read about the mighty acts of God and his work to deliver his people. The way in which he brought his people out of Egypt. One such example. In this book, we read the story and the life of Jesus. And in many cases, this book speaks not just of the events that happen, but it also helps to interpret the events. It explains the meaning for them. In this book, we read the stories and the events of God acting, working to redeem for himself a people. That's what the storyline of the Bible is about. And yet the reality is that even the more modern parts of the Bible, well, they're getting on to be 2,000-something years old. We may wonder if, if, if God's not dead, what's he doing today? And even the more modern parts of the Bible, the New Testament, well, it's becoming older, just like each of us, year by year. And you might wonder, is God past his use-by date? Has God forgotten us? 
You know, as a church, we looked at John's gospel not that long ago. Do you remember what Jesus promised towards the end of the gospel? He, he promised that he would come back, that he would return. And yet it's been 2,000 years. We might wonder, has he forgotten that promise? Esther helps us to see that God works not only through prophetic voices and through, through miracles, but he's also providentially at work keeping his promises. We see that in the book of Esther. And yet, I think the bigger message in the book of Esther is that God has a plan. What's that plan? He has a plan to redeem for himself a group of people. That plan involves sending Jesus into the world to, to die a sacrificial death of atonement for, for you and I. That event, that milestone in his plan, that has already happened in history. His plan of redemption, though, also includes the return of Jesus. And 2,000 years after Jesus made that promise to come back, you might be wondering, will it still happen? Certainly there are many around us who would, would call us crazy or who would mock us or who would scoff at the idea that Jesus is going to come back one day. This morning at our 9am service, we had Harry standing up here with his parents, Michael and Katie, and they were dedicating him. And there are many in our world who would think that's a strange thing to do or a foolish or a futile thing to do, thinking that God's not alive, not in control. I hope Esther has reminded you as we've worked our way through that, that despite the powers that be in this world, even powers as big as the Persian Empire, God's redemptive plan for his people is a certainty. It's, it's not a fanciful idea, it's the reality. Today we live in, in what the Bible describes as the last days. That's the days after Jesus' death and resurrection and before he returns. In these last days, uh, I want to encourage you from this reminder from 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3. I've got the, the reading on the screen behind me. If no, I can put it up there. This is what Peter reminds us. He says, Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, Where is this coming? He promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. See, that, that same God who's, who's working providentially to preserve the Jews in Esther is also working providentially in our world today, and yet he's also promised that he will work concretely and actively and definitively in the person of Jesus. He's promised he will return, despite the scoffers and those who mock. How can we be sure of that? How do we know? It's because he's promised to do so. Look at what uh, Peter says in that passage that I read. Because he is the God that formed the very creation in which we live, and he did that by speaking by his word, if he could create the world in which we live by his word, then we can have confidence 
in his promised word. We can have confidence that Jesus will return. I think it's reasonable for us to conclude that God is working most often providentially in our lives today. That he's sovereign over the events and the things that happen in this world. But it's also right to conclude that he will act definitively and concretely and really again in the person of Jesus who he has said will return. You know, today we see God working quietly. And often it's, it's easier to look backwards on our lives and see the way in which God has been at work. Sometimes we might feel like we miss that, miss seeing things. But he will one day again work in a way that can't be missed. There'll be a loud command, the blast of a trumpet, the raising of the dead. That is part of God's plan for the world. That's what God's doing to make for himself a people. God has a plan, he's in control. And what really excites me is that we get a part to play in that plan as well. We have a part to play in God's plan, a plan that we we know will come to fruition. Now, most of you know that I'm married to Meredith. What you might not know about Meredith is that she loves reading books, but only if she knows the ending to the books that she's reading. Anytime Meredith starts reading a book with any level of suspense... She'll read the first few pages and then turn and read the last chapter. She can't read the rest of the book until the last chapter has been read, until she knows how the story ends. We know how God's plan is going to end. We know that he'll be victorious. We know that he will gather for himself a group of people as numerous as the sands on the seashore. We know that because that's what he's promised. Esther gives us a snapshot of of what God is doing and how he's doing that, despite the odds, despite the power of the enemy. And so we can take joy from Esther knowing that God will keep doing that work, that he will keep preserving and redeeming for himself a people. And yet we know from other parts of the Bible, like Matthew's Gospel, that we also have a great part to play in God's plan for redemption. Come with me to one last passage in the Bible before we finish up this morning. Matthew chapter 28. It's a passage that many of you will know. Verse 18. Uh, This is called the Great Commission. Here we have God speaking through the person of Jesus, acting in a definitive and concrete way in the person of Jesus. And God God is speaking. And this is what Jesus says. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you and surely I am with you always to the very end end of the age. So much that we could cover in this passage. We just look at that last sentence. Jesus promises to be with his disciples till the very end of the age. He's not dead. He's alive and with us today. Of course, not physically with us. Physically, he now sits at the right hand of the Father. But by his Spirit, he is with us. Till the time when he will return to be with us physically. And he's commissioned us with a task to to join him in his plans, in the redemption of a people. He's commissioned us to make disciples and, and to baptize and to teach everything that he's commanded. 
what I love about this is that God's plan for redemption, his plan for the world, somehow marvelously involves us. Somehow, despite God being providentially in control, despite him being sovereign in all things, he involves us in his plan. Last week, I asked you to to think about who you might be, who you might read yourself into in the story of Esther. I talked about the pride and the the hubris of of Haman and, and perhaps how we each had a little bit of that pride in ourselves. Today, I want to encourage you to see at least a little bit of yourselves in Esther and Mordecai as we take our part in God's plans of redemption. How might we take our part? Well, at least in part, uh, we could uh, take a leaf out of what we, we heard before from, from, from Hendre with Sam Chan and his book on how to talk about Jesus. We've got a few of these books around. Hendre held them up before. Sam visited uh, here this building last week to speak about ways in which we could have conversations with those around us about who Jesus is. Can I encourage you to start thinking about who you might pray for in your life, who you could connect with over spring? Who could you share a little bit of Jesus with over the coming few months? We have a part to play in God's redemptive plan. The last thing I want to say, though, as we close the book of Esther is an encouragement to keep walking by faith so we're living in a time where where Christianity it seems to be going out of fashion in one sense doesn't it you might remember at the start of this series I put a, a, a chart on the screen behind me showing uh, census results of people who are Christian over the last 30 years or so we live in a time and in a culture where where more and more seem to be opposed to the teaching of the Bible. And at times, because of that, it might feel like God is absent. I hope Esther's been an encouragement to you to remember that God is very much alive and very much active and very much in control in our world. In the past, he's worked boldly and concretely in the world as sure today it seems like he's working perhaps more quietly in a providential way. And at times it can be a little hard to see his action in the present. And yet we can be confident that he will bring about his plans. Can I encourage you then to be open to the creative and perhaps even unexpected ways in which God might be at work in your life, in and through you. Keep walking by faith. Keep keep living by faith, even when it feels and seems difficult. Keep praying for ice cream, so to speak. But perhaps, more importantly, keep praying that God's will will be done and that his kingdom will come. And as you pray, that, pray know that God preserved his people in Esther's time and therefore he will preserve us in this time that Jesus will return really concretely and definitively let me pray for us Father we thank you for this book of Esther that's helped us to see the way in which you worked in the time of Mordecai and Haman and Esther thank you that uh, you're a powerful God and yet you're a God who's at work in things like the rolling of a dice an overhead conversation and a beauty pageant Father we 
we thank you that you've made promises to redeem for yourself a people. We thank you that you've included us in your plans for this world. And so we pray that you'd help us to walk by faith, following after you steadfastly. Amen. I've got a couple of, a few questions to try and answer today. Uh, the first one um, says this, does Esther tell us anything about self-defense for Christians? If we're being persecuted for the sake of Christ and I understand we shouldn't fight back, what about a simple mugging? Uh, kind of a good question, right? So does Esther tell us anything about how we're to behave in terms of persecution? I think this question comes out of the way in which the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand and ended up killing, well, uh, to be honest, thousands and thousands of people. Um, what is, is there a place for that? In Esther, I think as you read through that, you'll, you might notice that the author goes uh, to great lengths to always talk about how plunder was not taken. There's a reason behind that. It's something to do with the way in which they think about the killing in that as being part of holy war. Now, I'm not sure we want to get into that in a whole lot of detail today, but I do want to suggest that in the New Testament times, there's probably no place for that that Jesus would rather say, turn the other cheek. If you're sued for your shirt, give them your cloak as well. That's something like what he says. Um, I think we're to be all, uh, all things to all people today in order that Christ would be glorified. So I think we probably today, that's not the case for us, that there's not really any reason to um, exact any revenge in that particular way. I hope that's helpful. Um, next question says, um, in... Uh, the last verse of chapter 8, where you see many people becoming Jews because they feared them. How do they do that? I think essentially, uh, obviously they're not becoming ethnically Jews, but throwing their lot in with the Jewish thinking, tradition and way of life and essentially converting to Judaism um, from the religion of uh, the Persian Empire. Um, so that's what they're doing. They're becoming Jewish in that sense. And the last question says, how can we be sure that we're included in the end of the age that Jesus speaks about at the end of Matthew? Uh, yeah, that's a good question as well. I'm not sure that I've got the full answer to that, other than I think thinking that what Jesus is doing uh, at the end of Matthew is preparing his disciples for the time in which we live today. He's preparing us for that time in which we have the Spirit, but which he's not physically present with us, and preparing us for that time where he, that intermediate time between when he will return. And I think that's what he means then when he's speaking about the age. So I hope that's helpful. Um, please come and chat with me about any other questions that might have come out of today or out of the book of Esther. Love to work those through with you over the next, next few weeks. Thank you.